Hey there, my name is Roy Orbison Jr. and this is Charlie McCoy for Roy Orbison Jr.'s Rock and Roll Circus podcast or wherever this ends up. Hopefully we make a documentary out of this thing. Um, where do I begin? I didn't think of an introduction here and we've already started talking before the camera came on about uh, just old memories and I think that's what we'll just continue doing. Uh, I said I did my research and that you're from West Virginia and Wayne Moss is from West Virginia. Correct. Yes. And I don't even know anybody else from West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a lot of, well, we didn't have a lot, but we had some famous people from there. Little Jimmy Dickens. Uh, okay. You know, Kathy Matea, Brad mm -hmm. Paisley, mm -hmm. uh, Jennifer Garner mm -hmm. It's from West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don Knotts. Was part of Johnny Cash's family from over? I, John Carter invites us all the time. He's, he's got, a, oh well, that may be private. <laughs> okay, uh, but he's got a cabin out in West Virginia. Hmm, I didn't know that. Something, I know they're Arkansas. And, right, uh, right. But I think these, I think the Carter family, aren't they West Virginia? Well, they were from Virginia. They were down around Bristol. Okay, well that's where John Carter still has the old family right. farm in Bristol. Right. That's what's going on. Yeah. Because he always says West Virginia. And that Virginia. was one of the first recording studios was located there that made country records. I know a lot of that kind of history, um, but I didn't know that part. Um, mine goes back, I have, a, I'm about a 75 year old my, uh, mind, uh, <laughs> man <laughs> in my mind. It, it, because of the way that my dad raised me, he kind of, he kind of um, transferred a lot of that. Sure. But I don't, so I, you know, I know that, I know radio stations, I know the, the history of recording really well, and I know all the early, back to the 50s. But then when you go back to the 30s, talking about anything before Sun Records and Norman Petty right, Studios. Right, right, You know, so I wouldn't know. I thought it was all in New York and L.A. I didn't know, was, would that be based around, what, Appalachian music and A.P. Carter? Right, I think, uh, I think the Carters recorded there. Uh, I'm... Perhaps Jimmy Rogers came up there as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, it was some real old, you know, and and uh, you know the uh, the Stoneman family is from up that way. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, history up there. My memory goes back to uh, Shreveport, which for me is pre-rock and roll right. in that part of the country. So right. And it's still fascinating to me kind of what happened in Shreveport, how these things can blow up for a time and then kind of disappear, and then you know they move and and uh, how Shreveport could have been Nashville and all these things. And, um, well, the, the reason it wasn't, okay, they had, the, they had the Louisiana Hayride there, but the Grand Ole Opry was much bigger. And the Grand Ole Opry, of course, was on this monster radio station. Yeah, that in that in the day when weather was good, it could reach two-thirds of America at night because of the clear channel. And because they didn't have laws on how hard you could blast that, right? Well, true. This is true. And uh, many people, you know, before television, many people in the country, uh, their, inter their entertainment on Saturday night was listening to the Opry. So the Opry is the reason the recording really got going here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, then the next couple of things that I was going to talk about, eventually we'll get to some Orbison things. Um, but when did you move to Nashville? Okay, uh, my story is this. I started playing harmonica when I was eight. Started playing guitar later that year. In the f 
50s, I was all into rock and roll. Uh, Fast Domino, Carl Perkins. Chuck Berry was my hero. And I learned to play Chuck Berry guitar and sing his songs. And uh, one night, uh, Mel Tillis, who at the time I had no idea who he was, came up to me at a, I was playing and he said, boy, you come to Nashville, I'll get you on records. You know, it was like showing a steak to a wolf. And uh, the day after high school, I came to Nashville looking for Mel Tillis. And he told me his manager had an office. And I went to this office and I went in and I said, I'm from, I'm come up here from Florida. I'm looking for Mel Tillis. And they said, oh, he's out of town. <laughs> I just drove 800 miles, right? <laughs> and, but they said, uh, what's your name? And I told them and they said, oh, uh, the the boss man here, whose whose name was Jim Denny, he's a he was a very important man here in the early days in publishing, mm -hmm. and he once he was the head of the Opry, mm -hmm. he's in the Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. and he said, Mr. Denny, I want to talk to you, so I went in talked to him, and I t he said, Yeah, Mel told me about you. He said, You want some auditions? This man is going to get me auditions. He never even heard me. Yeah. Just on Mel's word. So we we went and auditioned for Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley. And uh, I'm playing Johnny Be Good, right? <laughs> you know when you're 18, you think you know everything. So hey, if you know Johnny Be Good, you do know everything. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, both of them said the same thing. Well, son, we think you're pretty good, but we just don't do this kind of music here. You know, and of course, when you're 18, you get defensive. You're thinking in your mind, wait a minute, this little town, what do these people know? See, I was so naive. I was so naive. And then the key part of my life when Owen Bradley said to me, I'm having a session today. Would you like to come and watch? Uh, yeah. You know, I. And I was had, this in the first week or the first day or the first month? This is the first, the second day. <laughs> I stayed in a hotel the night I drove in, went to his office. Uh, went to, no, I went to his office that day when I got in town, stayed in a hotel. Next morning I went to audition for Chet and then over to Owens. And Owens said, I'm having a session at 2 o'clock. Come back here about 1.30. Okay, so Mr. Denny took me back over there and... Uh, this was at the Quonset Hut, mm -hmm. the famous Quonset Hut. And at the time, at the end of the room, opposite the control room, there was a stairway. And Owen Bradley said to me, if you'll sit about halfway up that stairway, you'll see what we're doing here. So I go up there and I sit, and I'm looking around. You know, there's a bunch of microphones. There's a piano. There's a set of drums. And I, uh, wait, there are no music stands. I couldn't figure out why there were no music stands, right? Then the musicians start coming in. I had no idea who they were, but when you're 18, everybody looks old, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, look at these old guys. And these old guys were the Nashville A-team. I'm talking Floyd Kramer, Grady Martin, Bob Moore, Buddy Harmon, Ray Eddington, Harold Bradley, you know, Boots Randolph. The Roy Orbison band. Exactly. And then, about 
quarter to two, the artist comes in, 13-year-old Brenda Lee. Oh, that's cool. And I'm thinking to myself, it's a child. <laughs> They're going to record a child, you know. And she's still a child. She's always a child. Right. But when I heard that first playback, it was my whole life changed because, it, and at the moment I said, I don't want to sing. I want to do this. Talking about playing on these records. Mm -hmm. So I went back to Florida, made it almost a year in college and dropped out and came back to Nashville, 1960. And the short end of this long story is that uh, I started doing playing my harmonica on demo sessions for Jim Denny and Cedarwood Publishing Company. And I got a call, uh, it was beginning of May in 1961. Uh, Chet just called me. He's recording an unknown singer from Sweden named Ann Margaret. And he'd like for you to play exactly what you played on that song. Whoa, a real session, right? So I go there and uh, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. There was God, Chet Atkins. There was the, his disciples, the Nashville A-team musicians. There was his heavenly choir, the Anita Kerr singers. And there was an angel, 20-year-old Ann Margaret. Yeah. Needless to say, I was distracted. Yeah. But I already knew what to play. But I wasn't the only one in there that was distracted. I can tell you that. Oh, no. So, but the mad, what, what this story leads to is that at the end of that session, Bob Moore, the bass player, walked over to me and he said, you free Friday? Hey, I was free the rest of my life. And I said, yeah. And he said, come back here, recording Roy Orbison. And I was a huge fan, man. Only the Lonely, I thought, was one of the greatest records I'd ever heard. I was a, I was a huge fan. And I, I could not believe this good fortune, you know. And uh, went into the studio, and I knew uh, most of the guys except Scotty Moore was on it. And I'm thinking, my God, that's Elvis's guitar player, you know. I said, this is too cool. And uh, he started, and he had uh, Joe Melson was his co-writer then. Yeah. You know, and he started singing Candyman. And I, and it's kind of bluesy, and I thought, yeah. hey, this is right up my alley, you know. Yeah. So uh, they run the song a little bit. The guys are learning it. I'm just sitting back, you know, waiting on somebody to tell me something. And, and Roy says, hey, somebody please come up with an introduction. Well, I had an idea right away, but I'm the new guy and I'm not saying anything, right? So we play it a little bit more. And he said, now look, somebody has got to come up with an introduction. So I walk over to Harold Bradley, because I knew him. He was the session leader on all those demos I've been playing. And I said, Harold, what if I did this? And I play do 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 do, and everyone else joins me in a do do do. And Harold said, "Hey everybody, hey everybody, 
Charlie's got the intro, and I'm like, <laughs> and so that was it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, when the record hit the radio, my phone started ringing. In May, it was 57 years. My phone's still ringing. Thank hey, you. we called you today. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. That was already so much, and. Um, there's legends built around every every name and every situation you just mentioned. Sure. Um, comes to mind, uh, Jim Denny was also um, head of Columbia when Buddy Holly wanted to join Sun. Um, he was rejected and he kept on driving from Memphis, came here and was accepted at Columbia. And Jim Denny famously did not let Buddy Holly play guitar on his first album. Yeah, it goes up there. It's one of the top ten mistakes. I put that up there with Sam Phillips sell, selling Elvis and whoever it was not signing the Beatles and you know and not letting Buddy Holly play. So he sang, and they also. So when you said we don't play that kind of music, I already know it was Jim Denny who said that. He was um, part of what they call now the Nashville Mafia, and they've made movies. Um, Harold Bradley. I can also see why you went to Harold because Harold was always so nice. Yes. And uh, one of my questions for you later is, my dad, one of his quotes about Charlie McCoy is, I'd pay Charlie to be there on the session even if he didn't play anything. <laughs> and uh, it's because you're so nice and you're so uh, amiable and, you, uh, and intelligent and funny. And, uh, and I wondered if you knew more than what I've surmised from meeting you. Why was it that Roy loved you so much? I don't know. We, we hit it, you know, when I, when I started playing on the, Candyman, he lit up, you know. Yeah. And uh, we we hit it off. And a couple times uh, later on, when I joined the band with Wayne, we played with him at a couple of shows, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we we always got along great. And uh, of course, the other song in that session was Blue Bayou. That was the first day. That yeah. was the same day. Yeah. <laughs> we did Candyman and Blue Bayou on that session. Oh mercy! And you know, for in that day and time, that was a slow day for a Nashville session. We usually always got three songs, sometimes very often four, you know, because mm -hmm. that's just the way it was back then. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you're going to get two, those are two good ones again, huh? <laughs> Candyman's still the greatest guitar uh, harmonica riff of all time, and. Uh, I have been in Sweden and met friends that didn't know who I was. I was running around incognito and uh, at a party and some guy pulls out harmonica. He goes, I play harmonica and he went straight into Candyman. I was, <laughs> I was like, I was listening to this. He was actually okay, but I, it was still, I have these memories in my uh, mind of being in Sweden, people at a party and the guy picks up a, and the first thing he goes into is Candyman. I was like, oh my Lord. Um, about that, uh, I'm just going to keep jumping around where, where my mind takes me. Uh, did you play on that Anna Margaret and, and Candyman? Uh, were you playing into a handheld mi uh, microphone? No. Or would they put it on a stand? No, or it was on a stand. On a stand. Or were you playing into overheads? You were just playing, b balancing it in the room? Or it was on a stand? Yeah, it was on a stand. And would it be one of those RCA kind of diamond kind of shaped at what those famous it just was probably old, a neumann really all right a neumann us 67 or something or u 49 or one of those a lot of people myself included are into that kind of tech uh 
stuff. Yeah, because I'll, you know, in that day, uh, to begin with, the studios didn't even own earphones. There were no headphones. Okay, I didn't know that. Everyone played soft. You could hear, everyone could hear each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, on many of the hit records I played on, I remember where I was standing in the room, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it was never a problem to hear. Mm -hmm. Now, when people, when they started turning up the amps and the drummers started playing, that's when studios started getting isolation yeah. booths. Mm -hmm. And then you had to have headphones. Mm -hmm. But most of those early records, up until probably 64 or 65, there were no headphones. Mm -hmm. It was what you hear is what you get. We were all together. The mm -hmm. singer was there. The background singers were there. And if mm -hmm. one person made a terrible mistake, Everybody had to do it again, and nobody wanted to be that guy. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to be him. So there was an attention level that's much, much stronger than today when you have the option to fix anything, to overdub an S on a word, mm -hmm. you know? Because mm -hmm. it was like, this is it, y'all. We're going for it. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be right. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have a preference in harmonic in those early days? Was it something you remember? It had to be Honer, right? Marine Band? Oh, yeah, it was Honer. Uh, Wooden Marine Band? Probably a Marine Band. Yeah. Probably. And uh, do you still um, do you still play those? Do you, and do you like wood comb or plastic comb? No, I like, I like plastic the Special comb. 20. I like that black Special 20. That's what I play. Boy, special isn't that great? 20. It's so smooth and loud and easy. Uh, yeah. I'm not much of a harmonica player, but what I've learned, I've learned from playing along with Candyman. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I, I do Candyman when, when I play. It's, it's, it's uh, just a, still a perennial favorite. Um, the version that you played is, um, structurally, is strange. It's a uh, key of G. It's a C harmonica. Yep. Uh, and it's, n it's nine bars of G and then three bars of C and then three bars of G, you know, and it's it's about seventeen bars. But you know what up. the story behind all that is? When when he came here to do only the lonely, mm -hmm. Harold Bradley told me that, you know, he had a lot of two four measures in that song, mm -hmm. and Harold told me he said, for thirty minutes in in that session, we were trying to talk him out of those two four bars. <laughs> I said, Roy, it's out of meter, and he said hey, I don't know anything about meter. This is the way I do it. He said, but if you just add two beats to this part, no, no, I don't need, I don't want to add two beats. This is the way I do it. And finally, they all threw up their hands and said, well, okay. Count it. And then look what happened. Yeah. A giant, giant hit. And that's in nearly all his songs. Um, in Blue Angel, there's a, there's in the space of eight bars, there's Two, four, three, four, and four, four, and um, right, and it's in Pretty Woman. Yep. That opening riff is yep. actually in six, four. It's one. It's da na 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 na, chung chung chung, da na 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 na. Right. It's in six. Then it goes yeah. into four, four. Right. And then in the architecture of the song, there is another bar of two, four on that D where yep. you count. You know, and uh, I always wondered. You know, that's that's like architecture, geometry. It's like if you find in the center of the room with your thumb. But it thumb. came right out of his mind. Yeah, yeah, it, it comes out it of came you from. Know, something in, yeah. uh, in hey. geometry even. And 
hindsight is 100% accurate, right? Yeah, yeah. How can you question it? And then I still hear, you know, I'll hear a song like Hey Yeah by that outcast, that, you know, shake it, shake it, shake it, like a Polaroid picture song. And it plays along, I'm playing it, and it, it has the last bars in 2-4. Yeah. And what it does is it, it can be used in different ways. It can use to slow things down and uh, as a kind of passing, or it can actually jump it forward. If you put it like in an eight bar structure, you put it on the last one, you're, you're actually jumping the gun a little and it propels the song forward. But even 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 Hank Williams, way back before, mm -hmm. his, his song Honky Tonk Blues, yeah. It's got a two-four bar at the end of every phrase, you know. I know. I could never play honky tonk blues because of that. Yeah. And John Lee Hooker did thirteen bars and eleven and a half. And well, John Lee played a lot by himself too, and it's it's easier to do when you're playing by yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that is all very interesting stuff. Um, where was that going to take me next? It was going to take. Oh, well, Roy was a very good pool player. Um, he was good at geometry. He was good at building things. He was good at drawing. He could write with his right and his left hand, you know, and he would, he would, I would wake up and he would be gone in the morning or, or sometimes and I'd walk into my bathroom and he would have written, uh, he'd write in backwards on the mirror, you know, kind of like Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci, he could write, so I, or, or he would write me notes, that, that's what it was, he, I would get a note like on my pillow and I would uh, have to run in the bathroom and hold it up in the mirror to read what he had written. So he did have that kind of left brain kind of thinking. Did you ever play pool with him? Was there a pool table in some of the studios? No. Well, there was a ping pong table in a couple of them, right? In, in, in the Quonset hut there was downstairs. Okay. But okay. not at RCA. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, I used to ask, I would ask Roy some, a lot of questions. And one time I said, like, why, didn't you, why weren't these guys your road band? Why didn't you have Charlie and, and Harold and some of the guys you really liked? And uh, and even on the way here, I was thinking, you know, why didn't we hang out more for Thanksgiving and things like that? And uh, I didn't have a real answer, but I know even Roy and Johnny, his best friend, you know, their their tour buses had passed like ships in the night. They were out there somewhere, and and then entire entire show, uh, tours, we would have some opening act, like Willie Nelson or someone, and we never really. You know, Roy would get there 10 minutes for his show and he'd leave right after and we were all in our own worlds, isolated. Yeah. But Roy was a, was quite a recluse uh, too. Um, that's kind of almost forgotten now, but uh, but when, when, I, when I was younger, when I thought of the really reclusive people, it would have been Howard Hughes, Greta Garbo, Roy Orbison. You know, Elvis Presley by necessity. But, um, but uh, that's something that's kind of easily forgotten, that Roy couldn't do normal things. He couldn't go really, he had to rent the movie theater if he was going to the movie theater. Oh, he'd yeah. go after yeah. it closed at 12 midnight, he'd rent it and invite everybody and they'd go. So he, he didn't socialize that much. I regret that he didn't live longer because I know you guys would have a lot to talk about now. That's a little bit what we're doing here. You True, know, yeah. You guys didn't get, and that, that, that's actually a real, that's the sadness of dying young. He didn't get to go back and write his bio, his memoir. He didn't go to go back and circle back and, you know, now you turn on the TV and you see Terry Bradshaw and Roger Staubach and they used to hate each other, you know, Pittsburgh Steelers and, and they're on the sure. same show talking and they go, oh, you were better. Oh, no, you were yeah, the best. Yeah, so yeah. You, sure. And, and, I, and I, I know Dad would have liked to have circled back. He was in the process of that a bit towards the end, you know. He got back with the Traveling Wilburys and George Harrison and he was uh, in, in there, his name was Lefty Frizzell, so he's listening to Lefty Frizzell and the music of his childhood. And people say, what would he have been doing, you know, if he was alive? And I'm, 
He would have been doing a lot of things. Um, he would have done a duets album. He probably eventually would have done a country music album, though he wasn't country. And and Roy would almost they would introduce him as country and western. He'd he didn't get upset at much, but that upset him. And uh, just like Johnny Cash, when they called Johnny Cash rock and roll, he was ready to go get violent. Um, <laughs> and it's very funny because all these years later, Johnny's kind of considered rock and roll. Roy's kind of country. Um, but um, but uh, Roy was a bit of an outsider in Nashville because he wasn't country. And I think sometimes he probably should have just moved straight to L.A. Well, but just remember that uh, in that time period, three of the biggest pop acts in the country were Roy, the Everleys, and Brenda Lee. Yeah. And they all recorded here. Yeah. They did all their music here. And uh, Nashville used to get, uh, you know, when you when you study the story of Nashville recording, Back when Rolling Stone magazine hit the scene, and that generation of the Haight-Ashbury, the people, uh, you know, that smoked funny cigarettes and protested everything and all that, Rolling Stone was their Bible. And Rolling Stone did not write kindly about Nashville mm -hmm. until... Mm -hmm. Dylan recorded Blonde on Blonde. Mm -hmm. Then it all changed. But before that, I've I read some of those articles. They called it uh, cookie cutter music, mm -hmm. you know, uh, assembly line music, mm -hmm. all business and no heart, mm -hmm. or all business and no art, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, uh, nobody here cared about that because we were busy around the clock making hit records, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And okay, most of what we did was country, but this was the home of the Grand Ole Opry. This was the country music capital of the world, and it still is. And so none of us really cared about all that, uh, but uh, there were those three acts that were huge, huge pop acts, and they were recording right here in the same studio with the same musicians that the country guys were. Mm -hmm. Oh, and don't forget Elvis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I have a joke on that that I made up, my own little joke, and uh, it's, it doesn't matter where people come from, whether it's Sweden or New York, they come visit and I take them around to show them some things, Country Music Hall of Fame. Somewhere around lunchtime they say, why is Nashville called Music City USA and not Country Music USA? And I look <laughs> at them, no, I look at them and I go, Elvis and Roy Orbison. Yeah. But it is also the Everly Brothers and Peggy Lee, of course. But but that's my my little joke. I say, so why why is Nashville country music? Yeah. You know, not country music. You and it's also um, Bobby Vinton, Patty Page, uh, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, uh, mm -hmm. Perry Como. I recorded two hit records with Perry Como here. You know, wow. I mean, it's the the list goes on and on and on. And mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. people they they might not want to believe it, but. It mm -hmm. happened. I, I know it was because I was there. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were talking about Bob Dylan. I, uh, I guess, uh, I guess I got two stories because it's all around the same time. Around 1974, we were at what was um, later people call it Ronnie's place, Ronnie's studio, but it was actually American studio. It was Roy's uh, Roy's studio behind the BMI building. Yes. That was his, around 72, he had that place, and around right. 74. And I would sleep on the floor there all the time because Roy, like Elvis, liked to work at night. And as I was saying, Roy was very, very reclusive. You know, they had to 
they had to shut down the hotel floors and put shut all the windows and he had secret knocks and one of his tricks was to get two rooms with the uh, with the adjoining room and he would only enter through this but he's actually staying in this one so people could knock and he could kind of open the door and see and shut it back again they didn't know even what room he was in and the fake names and things like that it was a kind of a strange life we had but he um where was I going with that? Uh, I, I got lost in, in remembering how reclusive we, he, he was. Oh, so we were working at night and they needed harmonica and they phoned and this guy came in and it was you. But uh, it, it's something I still remember. You were like a gangster to me because you were also dressed in all black. You had this black leather vest, kind of a black hat. I recognize it now as a cowboyish kind of thing, but you didn't seem like a cowboy. And uh, sorry. And uh, and you came in, and you had a belt on, and the belt was filled with harmonicas. You had a briefcase. Uh, they played you the song. You didn't say a word. You put it down. You open it up. You kind of look through, tap it a little bit, and you walk in and did your thing. And then you put it away and walked out. And I don't know. That probably took you know more a little bit of time, but. But you seem so professional and so, you know, and I, years later I was there, who was that? And I just remember all the harmonicas and I didn't know why you needed more than one or what, you know, but, and, and the way that my dad treated you, I could tell sometimes it was almost like old army buddies, you know. Um, so when I first met Carl Perkins, you know, it was very different than other people. He'd introduce this guy and I'd go, Daddy, Daddy, who's that guy? Why is he dressed like you? You had the sideburns and stuff, and so uh, so I knew you were something special, and then and then I didn't see you much after that. But I knew you know that's still ingrained. That would be about '74, really. It was that early. Um, that's also about the time that um, Bob Dylan came to town, and uh, he was he made a couple of albums here. And my little story about Bob Dylan there that I've t I tell quite often, um, and I have a lot. I'd have to I could write a whole couple of chapters on Bob Dylan, but I was playing in our backyard in Hendersonville there at the point and we had gates and we had dogs and things and the fans would go we had 3000 fans a day that would pass our I house know. you know I've, so we would I've been by there in Swedish tour buses <laughs> Oh before. yeah and we uh so sometimes it would take minutes to get into our driveway we'd be waiting in the tour bus would have to go and everyone get out and take it could take 15 minutes to pull into our driveway if you were sitting there um and the crazy fans would go into the yard but only the really cr crazy ones would get around the back of the house because the back of the house, I don't know, it was just very private. And there's, and so I'm playing in the back of the house at the pool and I see this guy coming up, kind of leathery, scruffy, scruffy hair. And I got scared and I run in the house, I run the house, I shut the sliding glass door, I lock it. Mommy, 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 there's a burglar back in there. There's a burglar. <laughs> she comes running, she looks out and there knocking on the window, looking in the glass is Bob Dylan. And now when I think back about when that would be, it would have been around Nashville skyline times. Um, blonde on blonde. Uh, what can you tell us about those things? <laughs> what, which one was first, blonde on blonde? Blonde on blonde, it, was, it, it, it came in that order, blonde on blonde, John Wesley Harding, Nashville skyline. He did all three here? Yes. And then either he and the producer or his manager and the producer had a falling out and we went in and took a they had a bunch of old piano guitar demos and we went in me and Kenny Buttry went in and added bass and drums to them and then we brought in some Nashville people steel guitar 
and that became the album called Self-Portrait. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, but my first experience, I played on a record, uh, uh, Highway 61 Revisited. In New York, you were in, in New York. In New York, I played on the song uh, Desolation Row. Played wow. acoustic guitar on it. Mm -hmm. And this all came to be, uh, Bob Johnson was a singer-songwriter from Texas. Not a singer, but a songwriter. And he was writing for Hill and Range Music, which was the Elvis Presley Music Group. Mm -hmm. And I found out early on that when they, Elvis had a new movie, when they wrote the script, they'd say, we need a song here, a song here, a song here. And they would send the script out to all their staff writers, and these guys would compete to get their songs in the movies. Mm. So Bob Johnson called me, told me who he was. He said, I want to make demos to try to get songs in Elvis movies. So he came to town and we made a lot of demos. I think he ended up getting about seven songs in movies. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, the ones that they didn't accept, he'd go pitch them around to other record labels, right? So he was in Columbia Records in New York and he played a demo and the, the head of A&R said, God, these demos are great. Where did you make these? He said, Nashville. And he said, and the magic word, did you produce these? And he was, a, he was quick on his feet and he said, yes. He said, uh, you ever think you'd want to be a producer? Yes. <laughs> so the guy, I don't, know, I don't know how he impressed him that much, but the guy said, we've got an artist on the last session of her contract, and if we don't get anything, we're going to drop her. Would you like to try a session on her? He said, who is it? Patty Page. Patty Page, you know, is a huge star. And using his contacts from the Elvis Presley Music Group in LA, he found a movie that needed a theme song recorded, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Oh. He, brought her to, he brought her to town. We recorded at the Quonset Hut. We had a full string section all together. Mm -hmm. Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte was a huge hit. Mm -hmm. Now Columbia Records thinks, man, we have found our knight in shining armor. So they called him in and said, you want to try to record Bob Dylan? And he said, yes. <laughs> so he moves to New York and he tells me, if you ever come to New York, you want Broadway tickets, I'll get them for you. I said, okay. So 1964, I happened to go to New York to the World's Fair, and I called him. I said, hey, how about my Broadway tickets? He said, no problem. He said, hey, listen, uh, I'm recording Bob Dylan today at 2 o'clock. I wish you'd come over to the studio. I'd like for you to meet him. I said, okay. So I took a taxi over to Columbia Studio and walked in. He introduced me to Dylan, and Dylan said, I'm getting ready to record a song. Why don't you get that other guitar and play along? It was Desolation Row, 11 minutes long. It was me and him and a bass player. That was it. And I had the whole thing. And I was sitting there saying, what would Grady Martin do? Because <laughs> I was really overmatched, you know. I, I mean, I played guitar, but I, uh, anyway. So we recorded the song. A couple months passed, Bob Johnson calls me, hey, Dylan's coming to Nashville, book the guys. Wow, you know, because I, I, he had told me, 
I, I want him to come to Nashville, but he doesn't want to. His manager doesn't want him to. So anyway, he finally said to me, I don't know if you know it or not, but I was using you for bait. Uh, he said, after you played on Desolation Row, he agreed to come to Nashville. Great. Okay. So that's that's uh, part of that Dylan story. Do you have a personal favorite of those albums? Can it, it's, uh, A lot of people say Blonde on Blonde. That's just one that stands mm. out for people. But you like I don't uh, know. I'm, Probably Nashville it, Skyline. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, that's the one my mom liked the best. I, I'm listen. I I admire a lot of the stuff he did. To be honest, I'm not a huge fan. Were you a fan of the Traveling Wilburys? Did you notice when they came yes. out of band that Roy I, was I, in I, there? I liked it. They did. That? Wasn't that great? Yeah. Um, I loved that. There's a little harmonica on there. I think Tom Petty played some, and Roy played some. Yeah. But even on uh, Handle with Care, there's some a uh, little bit at the outro and on Margarita. I saw Margarita. But uh, what did you think when you heard your old buddy Roy on that? Uh, I'm not on Handle with Care and End of the Line and those hey, great songs. You know, I real I realize it's number one. I mean, unless he's going to hire a harmonica player in his band, yeah, it, it was cool. And uh, Johnny Cash did the same thing, you know, with the Highwaymen. You mean? I played on Orange Blossom Special of his. Oh, yeah. And he did it live with that two harmonica Exactly. Thing. Well, he doo at the end of that session, he walked over to me and he said, How did you do that? Can you show me how to do that? Yeah. I didn't know you were the guy because I have thought like, oh, I wish I'd asked Johnny how to do that. Uh, so if you don't no, mind, no. if you don't mind, how do you do that? Is it, what What are the keys or what, is it a well, fifth? Well, he or? recorded the song in C. Okay, so what would... What and the song changes keys to F when it goes to the chorus. From the one Remember? to the four? Do, 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 We're in yeah. key of F now, right? Mm -hmm. So I use a B flat. Yeah. When you draw, you get F. Mm -hmm. When you blow, you get B flat. Mm -hmm. And then an F, when you draw, you get C. And when you blow, you get F. F, B flat, C, F. Those are the chords to the chorus. Yeah. And so it, he said, can you show me how to do that? And I, I showed him and I said, I'll tell you what, John. I said, these two harmonicas are yours. So I gave them to him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that is amazing. Uh, I always just assumed it was some old folk trick from like from, from the Civil War or something. Well, I, I, Did you invent that on that Yeah, song? because... Uh, I was trying to emulate what fiddles do, yeah, you know, yeah, and I was thinking about that, and I, I thought, hmm, how can I, because they were working on the song, and finally they told me, they turned to me and Boots Randolph, and they said, why don't you guys play a solo in the middle, you know, so, uh, okay, then I, then I was, you know, but this is 1965, mm -hmm. I'm already a four-year veteran of working with the Nashville A team, and well, you are in the A team. I don't know if you know, yeah. noticed that. Well, you yeah. were, when they talk about the A team, Charlie McCoy. Is but the uh, you know, man, the lessons I learned from those guys because you always had to come up with things in a hurry because they were doing three and four songs a session, you know, mm -hmm. and you had to come up with it in a hurry and and perform it and make it work. Because, like I said, there was no overdub, there was no fixing, mm -hmm. you know. 
you had to do it right. Mm -hmm. And so that's a mentality we had, you mm -hmm. know. We gotta come up with something quick. And that's the way all those great records were made. Thank you.